traditional, conventional probation does not work. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm talking to Steve Bishop from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. He's the author of a recent report on transforming juvenile probation, and we're going to talk about just that. So here's our conversation. So I thought we could start with a just broad overview of what probation is, because I think it can get confused with lots of other phases during the criminal process. So can you just take us like a quick step-by-step of like a child is arrested or accused of a crime? How do they end up on probation? So that's a really uh, kind of obvious first question to start with. Um, It seems like it should be a simple answer, but it's pretty complicated, which is actually (laughs) Uh part of the issue um, that we're posing in terms of of probation. Um, And it does look different in terms of uh, juvenile justice and juvenile court as opposed to adult. Um, So child gets arrested um, and let's just say in the simplest form, they would get arrested and eventually that charge gets referred um, to the juvenile court. Um, sometimes that referral to the juvenile court could come through the district attorney's office who then may file charges, um, or in some jurisdictions, it, the referral may actually go to the juvenile probation department, um, at some point in the process prior to going to court. And so how that's different, um, from the way you would typically function in criminal justice is that probation is solely kind of a post-trial um, type of decision um, once you're found guilty. But okay. for juveniles, there will typically be some interaction with the juvenile probation department um, pre-trial in order to, again, do some assessment and get some background history. Um, but that in most jurisdictions, that also means that there's some other um, alternatives for um for diversion and um, having something lesser than than probation that the probation department may still administer and provide supervision to a young person. Okay, for my own edification. So there's diversion, that's different than probation. Can you yes. be can can you be on probation pre-trial? So this is where it gets um, tricky. So if you look at it purely as a status, anything before for going to court and being adjudicated delinquent would be considered diversion. But again, it may be actual probation officers, though, that are providing that supervision and services. And then there's actual status of once you're um, found guilty of, of the delinquent act and the judge makes an order to put you on probation, then that's your status, your own probation, and you're supervised by a probation officer. So before we get into the ins and outs of the report, you were a probation officer yourself, is is that right? Correct. Yes. So. Yes. I, yeah. Can you yeah. can you tell us a little bit about um, why you decided to make make the move from uh, being a probation officer to ending up at the at a foundation that works on reform? Well, it's been a lot of um, steps in between those those two ends of the spectrum. Um, I stepped into the work as a as a probation officer pretty much right out of college, and you know, obviously wanting to work with young people um, from my own um, 
just experience where I grew up and things I've observed around me, seeing um, people in you know my community um, being involved in the justice system, uh, young people I went to school with being involved in the justice system. Um, that that was a passion for me to want to um, try to make an impact on their lives, help them get out of the system, um, and get on get on a brighter path. Um, part of what I've realized stepping into the work didn't know once I first entered the work was um, how much it was geared and oriented around law enforcement and around surveillance and compliance. Um, and and it's taken time to kind of realize just how the system is, doesn't seem to be engineered um, to do the things that I think most people who enter the field are hoping to do. I believe that most people come into the, into the field wanting to really work with young people, uh, work with their families, understand the challenges. I think they see themselves probably much more as like counselors and mentors, um, but the system is designed in a way that gears much of their day-to-day work towards surveillance and compliance. Mm. So can you tell us maybe a side-by-side before we get into the um, the nitty-gritty details of, can you tell us a story of, of probation you've seen not working or, or failing a kid and then maybe a story of probation doing what you aspire for it to do. So I'll, I'll, I think I'll approach that with maybe one story may give you kind of a sense of mm-hmm. that. So there's one particular case that um, I, I had on probation years ago, and I'll call the, the young man D. And um, D came into the came to the attention of the probation department for a fairly low-level offense, one which, at least in what we're proposing for probation, he would um, be diverted out of the system. So he gets on probation for a fairly low-level offense, has some restitution that's owed to a victim, um, obviously had a number of other stipulations that are typical in court orders around attending school, um, associating with positive peers, um, maintaining curfew, whole laundry list of, of conditions um, that's fairly typical in juvenile justice. Um, there's a kid who, you know, was a fairly good student, involved in activity, activities in the school, was an athlete, um, but also lived in a neighborhood um, where he was presented with a lot of challenges. Um, and at the age he was, I believe at the time, 15 or 16 is a difficult age developmentally anyway. Um, And so you can imagine that, like most kids, that meant while he was being supervised on probation, things come into my attention, like um, getting in trouble in school, Um, maybe nothing major, but getting in trouble in school, missing a curfew from time to time, maybe if there was appointments he was supposed to attend, missing that from time to time, behaviors that um, are are normative for adolescents, um, typical type of behaviors um, with adolescents. But obviously the bar gets really raised and things get ratcheted up when when you're being supervised on probation. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the challenge for me as I was able to forge a relationship with this young man and really better understand his circumstances, a lot of times was just trying to um, figure out ways to work with him um, and give him opportunities and chances um, to kind of work through his struggles um, and in some ways almost kind of protecting them from the system as well um, because there's nothing in the way the system was structured um, that really dictates and spells out how you give these young people chances and what the threshold for um, 
for patients with some levels of noncompliance should be and things of that nature. So what I found with this young man was um, a lot of times having to kind of figure it out on my own. Had, I had I was fortunate to have some good coworkers around me, a good supervisor. Um, but at the same time, if I wasn't necessarily wired that way, um, the probation officer, the cubicle next to me could very well say one or two violations and you're going back to court. And then this, you know, young man could have been looking at being removed from the home and going to out of home placement. Eventually while I had him on supervision, he actually did end up getting, um, incurring some new charges. Um, he had a great deal of restitution, was having trouble finding employment. And at a certain point, um, made another really bad choice in terms of, um, you know, trying to get money for restitution and getting involved in, in selling drugs. Um, and But again, I had a really good relationship with this young person. I thought I had a better understanding of what was driving some of these poor decisions. I thought that we could still make a lot of progress. Um, but getting that next opportunity to continue working with them, even on probation, really took uh, me as a fairly young probation officer doing a lot of um, engineering and kind of gaming the system. Um, so when it came time for his court hearing, you know, trying to schedule it and get it in front of the right judge and in front of the right prosecutor um, and really having to be strategic in terms of um, tapping into some other resources and folks in the community who could speak on his behalf and were willing to step up and make sure that we had places for him to go after school and be involved in positive activities and um, helping him you know, get a job to earn restitution. Um, but these were a lot of activities that I was, uh, the system's just not designed to support probation officers and being able to naturally do. Um, and so even what I'm describing with this young person, uh, there's lots of probation officers across the country that I think go the extra mile and make those same efforts. But a lot of what we're talking about in our, our probation work at Casey Foundation is how to structure the system in a way um, that what I just described and going the extra mile is just part of the job and it's something that's expected of everyone and the system is engineered and designed and resourced in a way um, that allows everyone to get those, those same opportunities. Um, and so I tell that story because that young man eventually, you know, he, he matured, he learned from mistakes, he, we were able to help him develop a better support network and eventually he, you know, we were able to make the case for him to not be sent away for placement for the additional charges that he that he received. Um, and eventually he worked his way off probation, graduated from high school, graduated from college, and became a physical therapist. Um, but for so many young people, um, that story turned out so much differently. So I could I could try to give you a side-by-side -side comparison, but I think the best way to tell it is that, um, unfortunately, that case in a lot of places is, is the exception. Mm -hmm. There's so many young people who um, they come to our attention, they come to the attention of the juvenile justice system with a lot of struggles, a lot of challenges, a lot of needs, and we tend to expect perfect compliance with probation. And when there's not perfect compliance and when there's setbacks and struggles, and definitely they you know, commit a new offense, um, usually that means the next step is removing them from the home. And we know that ultimately we get much worse outcomes with young people when we do remove them from the home than when we're able to really leverage the assets and um, within their own communities. Interesting. Okay, so you kind of answered my question, which is which is how the system is actually working. And, I, and, and just to sort of drill down on that a little bit, can you just tell me a little bit more about 
you know, if D had had a different probation officer or if the system were working in the sort of easiest way, what actually are the points where you think it could have turned out differently? So um, I'll, I'll say this kind of both ways um, in terms of the way it could have turned out differently. I, I mentioned that he came to the attention of the system with fairly low-level offenses. Um, so the first thing would have been he could have been diverted from the system. Now, the reality is even if he would have been, quote-unquote, diverted from the system, the way it probably would have looked would have still been supervision by a probation officer, a long laundry list of rules and conditions, an expectation for near perfect compliance. And what and are if some you of those fail, rules and conditions? Um, things that are not, um, I think, unreasonable for young people, um, but we also are starting to understand as a field developmentally um, what's manageable for young people and the best way to present it. So rules may include, you know, obviously um, not using drugs and alcohol, not committing any further crimes, um, not associating with negative peers, attending school daily and, you know, doing well in school, um, having a curfew um, and things like that. And then additionally, there may, there may be additional conditions around completing community service, if you have restitution to pay, if there's any type of counseling or anything like that that's ordered by the court or any uh, programs or services that the court stipulates. So all of those go into court orders. And again, not those on their face are Aren't, don't sound unreasonable and are not unreasonable, but developmentally we know that um, one, coming to the attention of the juvenile justice system can be a fairly traumatic event for a young person anyway. Um, navigating the system, understanding the terminology, knowing what's going on in the process can be challenging, and then being given, quite frankly, a long laundry list of that we've seen in some jurisdictions as many as 25, 30 rules to remember um, can be overwhelming, one, and again, um, most of those are behaviors um, and expectations that are reasonable for any young person. But we also know the, um, just the nature of being a teenager and adolescence that you're not going to get that perfect compliance with um, things like school and making curfew and the friends that you hang around. These are the challenges that all teenagers face, whether they are you know involved in some type of delinquent behavior or not. And so we just have to kind of set different expectations as we're helping them through a, a growth process. And so, um, is and so what I was going to say to the diversion, I'm sorry, I was going to say to the diversion piece, um, and so typically what would happen, you know, you're supervised on a diversion program, but if you don't comply, um, then you end up getting refiled and, and being brought to court for those charges, in which case then you can be put on probation. And so that, you know, when you don't have the compliance, you kind of get pulled deeper into the system. Um, and so that would have been one touch point where he could have had a different trajectory in terms of being diverted from the system altogether. Um, he came on probation and, again, had some challenges and struggles along the way, which I don't think is, is, is atypical um, with a different probation officer who had a different supervisor, a different climate, um, would have probably, especially by the time he incurred new charges, would have resulted in being removed from the community um, and being sent to a residential facility. So with that picture painted, is probation as it's currently as it currently exists working? So I'll answer that a couple ways. Um, what the research tells us is that um, I would say traditional um, 
conventional probation does not work. And how how I would define that is a young person simply being put on probation, a judge makes an order that you're on probation, you'll be supervised by this probation officer, given a list of rules, the probation officer keeps tabs on the young person to make sure they're complying with the rules. Um, what the research shows is that that approach is not effective in um, reducing reoffending. Um, so it just does not have the, the intended impact. Now, the reason I would, well, the caveat I will give is that what I just described is a very simplistic view of probation. And I would say in most places, probation also involves, um, you know, getting young people involved in some level of um, counseling or services and things of that nature. Um, but at its very core, that's the basic structure of probation. And we know that that is ineffective. And so the challenge is how to institutionalize an approach to probation that um, includes and expects um, the other levels of intervention that I described, that I think a lot of people in places work hard to employ and utilize, um, but again, the system isn't designed in a way um, to naturally um, provide that. And so, no, it, it, so in that way, traditional probation doesn't work. And we also know that it becomes a, a, a significant feeder to out-of-home placement. And we know uh, clearly from the research that young people um, who are removed from their communities and go and are incarcerated get worse outcomes um, than kids who remain in, who are able to remain in their communities. So, you know, latest data we look at shows that about a quarter of all um, young people who are incarcerated are there for what we would call violations of probation, just breaking probation rules, not new offenses, but, you know, breaking rules, again, which is fairly normative behavior for adolescents to have some level of um, risk-taking and, you know, and, and non-compliance. And we also know that we see a particular impact on youth of color, um, but in particularly as they move deeper into the system. Um, so the latest data shows that more than two-thirds of all young people who are in residential facilities for breaking probation rules are youth of color. And so that far outpaces their representation in the general population and even their overall representation in the juvenile justice system. Um, and, and so in that way, no, probation um, has, has not been effective. So what should probation look like if this, if this model is not working? So probation should definitely should be much more focused on young people who um, actually do present some level of risk to public safety, who are involved with um, serious offenses and or chronic offenses. Um, so the case I described with D, um, as I said, was fairly low-level offenses that could have probably been and should have been diverted from the system. Um, to your original question even about what is probation, that's part of the problem. Probation is often utilized um, in too many ways. Um, it becomes the catch-all for a number of youth problems. And so a lot of young people come to the attention of the juvenile justice system because they commit some type of crime, um, but underlying that actual offense may be mental health issues, drug and alcohol issues, family crisis. Some of it is just low-level kind of normative adolescent behavior. Um, and I think that they're this first, the front line for most youth behaviors should be their families, their communities, and other human service agencies, um, not the formal 
justice system. And so I think that's the first thing is really identifying the young people um, who simply just don't need that level of intervention, particularly since we know that mere involvement with the juvenile justice system actually increases the risk of young people. Okay, interesting. So basically what you're saying is is just do less probation. Yes. Okay. So do do less probation, fewer kids on probation, many more kids diverted and truly diverted from the system, not supervised by, by probation officers. One of the things that I think is most compelling when you really um, dig into the data is that more young people are supervised on probation caseloads who are, um, in terms of their status, diverted from the system than young people who've been adjudicated delinquent and ordered onto probation by a judge. Um, so then I can explain that some more. Hopefully that, that makes sense. But um, we have about 63% of all adjudicated youth are placed on probation, and that's about the latest data we looked at, about 183,000 youth. Um, but you have another 200,000 young people, again, who have not been found guilty in juvenile court, who have not been adjudicated, um, but they're still being supervised on probation caseload. So again, it gets kind of all the look and feel and, and eventually similar consequences for noncompliance. So shrinking that is, is the first step. And then the second step is just to then design and engineer probation in a way um, that is truly providing the types of supports and resources that the young people who we can least afford to get it wrong with, um, that we're able to provide those types of supports and services. So these will be young people, again, who maybe have come to the attention of the juvenile court at an early age, who have repeat offenses, serious offenses, um, have a lot of challenges and needs, and really need the very best resources um, that the system can bear. Um, but those resources need to be centered not around compliance and surveillance and restricting their liberty, but on um, helping those young people hit the types of developmental milestones that we know um, push all young people onto a positive trajectory into you know productive adulthood. Um, so really working with their families, providing supports not just to the young people, but to their families, um, creating juvenile justice systems, creating strong community partnerships and um, leveraging um, some of the community-based organizations and nonprofits that can provide additional supports and mentoring and role modeling for young people. Um, and another piece is really utilizing incentives. What we've learned from a lot of the research on adolescent development is that um, that young people, adolescents in particular, are much more receptive to incentives, rewards, opportunities for um, experiential activities, things of that nature. Um, that motivates them much more than threats of sanctions and um, threats of incarceration. Um, and so these are the types of lessons that we should take from this expanding body of knowledge. Are there other, uh, the idea of incentives is, is really interesting and sort of paradigm shifting. Are there other programs or models that you're looking at that uh, have been trying this or um, other sort of setups that you think are good examples of how this should look? Yeah, there's lots of places, as I said, that I think are starting to um, process and digest that the emerging research around um, both adolescent development and also around um, specific types of programs and approaches that have 
been shown to reduce delinquency. I think the challenge, again, is aligning the system in a way um, that resources appropriately and sets a higher expectation for systems to prioritize the use of the most effective programs that have been shown to work. Um, and yeah, and so I think that that's a big part of, of the challenge is engineering the system in a way. Um, two of the places that we've worked with um, through the Casey Foundation, we've supported a couple of sites. Toledo, Ohio is one. Tacoma, Washington is the other. And what we call probation transformation sites. And they've um, taken on some really ambitious work. Uh, so Toledo, Ohio um, implemented what they call misdemeanor services um program. And so basically what they started doing is diverting all mis youth with misdemeanor offenses. Um, part of what they looked at um, was a couple of things. They had a significant number of young people who were being supervised on probation caseloads for misdemeanors. Um, most of those those charges and offenses um, were, again, fairly low level and weren't indicative of a threat or risk to public safety. Um, so they thought this was a way that we could do better by young people. So they created this misdemeanor services unit. They actually repurposed several probation officers who became case managers. Um, the young people who come through the misdemeanor services unit um, are assessed and then they're connected to other resources in the community to do community service, to do some type of restorative justice program, um, to get connected to other type of counseling and other human service um, supports um, that are necessary, but without being supervised on formal probation supervision and without the threat of being locked up if they um, don't have perfect compliance. And so that's made a significant impact, um, both in terms of the number of young people that are being supervised on probation, but then the experience for the kids on probation, because with fewer kids on probation and having some of the toughest cases, probation officers are free to invest much more time and energy um, into those cases to work with the young people and their families in a, in a much more in-depth and meaningful way, um, freeing up time to build those community partnerships that I spoke of. And they've had great results um, because of that. Um, over the last several years, they have almost eliminated the practice of um, locking up kids for violating probation um, because they have much more space, time, and resources um, to help work with young people through that growth process, um, which we know oftentimes looks like two steps forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. um, the other site that I mentioned, Tacoma, Washington, has done a couple of really um, unique things. One is what they call opportunity-based probation, and this is really putting the use of incentives at the heart of their case management approach. Um, so they develop a point system with, with the kids who come on probation. Um, you earn X number of points for different behaviors like going to school, staying out of trouble, not breaking the law, passing drug tests if they have to do that. And they can accumulate these points and then redeem those points for different types of incentives and rewards, anything from gift cards to what they call community opportunities, which could be um, getting into like a, skate, a local skateboarding program or boat builders program or um, doing a hip hop class and all sorts of community partnerships that they developed and made those incentives for the young people who are meeting their conditions on probation. So they've really kind of used incentives as a driving force for their case management. And then they did another program that they call Pathways to Success. And this was a wraparound approach that they did 
that they do for African-American boys who are 15 and under. Uh, when they were looking at their data and looking at the young people who were being removed from the home for breaking probation rules, um, it, they saw a clear connection to um, that specific population, um, black boys under 15, and not for again, new offenses, but breaking the rules. And they saw this as a failure of the system and wanted to think of a better way to, to work with that population. Um, so they developed it was like a wraparound approach that includes um, having the probation officer as part of the team, but also um, a mentor who's involved with the young person, their family, and they really make decisions um, in, a, in a team context. Um, to provide support for the for the kids and the families. So that's been the big driver for, for both of these sites is both looking at where there's been disparities in the system and trying to develop some specific programming to reduce disparities and also really align their practices and their programs with what we know about adolescent development. And they both have had, you know, some great results. Um, before we leave this, I just, you triggered a thought for me, which is, do you know, like, what the percentages of kids who are in residential facilities are, are there because they violated probation, not because of their sort of underlying offense? Yeah, it's about uh, 25% of young of incarcerated young people. Okay. And um, do you have an idea of what that actual, what the absolute number is? Um, I believe the latest data was roughly this approximation around 50,000 young people on any given day that are, that are in residential care in the United States. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, so what do you think are the greatest barriers to achieving this you know, different model? So I think part of it is, um, well, a couple of different things that I think I've, I've already mentioned. One is um, tackling the issue of racial equity. Um, particularly within the context of our criminal and juvenile justice systems, um, that is by far the most distinguishing characteristic of our criminal and juvenile justice systems are the disparities. Um, we see it um, both locally at state levels and nationally that youth of color far over-represent um, their composition and, and the general population. Um, and so even as we've seen nationally over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, um, juvenile crime was indicated through arrest rates going down, use of secure detention, use of residential facilities on the whole has decreased. What we've actually seen is that the disparities um, between at those various decision points for youth of color um, has persisted and in some cases actually increased. So I think um, and so the, the connection with the racial equity piece in my mind is also around adolescent development and how we view young people, how we view their families, how we view the communities that they live in, that the professionals in the field understand historically the challenges that have faced those communities, um, that they understand the challenges that young people face, that they understand that most young people come to the attention of the system, particularly youth of color. Um, them coming to the attention of the system has as much, if not more, to do with where they live, how heavily their neighborhood is policed. If they go to a school that has police officers in the school, has much more to do with environmental factors than 
um, their actual behavior. Um, what we know from the research is pretty clear. Um, when you look at like the self-report surveys of youth across the country that young people get involved in risky behavior, sometimes even delinquent behavior at very similar rates. Um, you know, being a teenager is being a teenager pretty much. Um, but the experience for youth of color in terms of what it means to come into contact with a police officer, what it means for youth of color to get in school, um, that experience and those outcomes are, are very different. So I think um, having honest conversations about that reality and then thinking about um, how the justice system can not just um, not exasperate those problems, but actually help reverse that trajectory. Are there other barriers uh, to reform that you see coming down the pipeline? Um, it, it's the resourcing. And again, it, I think a lot of that centers, though, on um, an over-reliance on institutions and residential facilities. And so being willing to um, pour much more funds and resources into communities, um, pour, resourcing things like having incentives for young people, better resourcing community-based organizations in the communities where a lot of the kids that are on probation are residing um, so that they have sec safe recreational spaces, they have constructive activities they can be involved in, they have access to positive uh, role models and mentors in the communities where they live. Um, a lot of money goes into residential institutions, the cost for keeping a kid incarcerated for a year is astronomical. That same funding for one young person for one year in a residential facility uh, could go so, so far when you think about how that could be leveraged um, within a community supervision context and providing some, some services and resources and access for a, a much greater number of young people. So I think um, that that's a major piece to it is, is having the political will um, to to um, shift funding. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I really liked reading the report and uh, learning about an area of the criminal legal system that uh, I didn't know much about, but clearly needs a lot of work. So thank you for your work on this. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. As always, please remember to rate and review us on whatever platform you found the podcast on. Please contact us at wardeerpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, thoughts, concerns. And thank you to the folks at the Criminal Justice Policy Program at HLS, specifically Anna Wyke and Brooke Hopkins, and the folks at Poddington Bear who composed our theme music. Until next time. <laughs>